Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. They'd take me to the school chaplain and I was told to pray when I was, you know, trying to deal with my family or in the newspaper this morning. I'll just pray it away. And so I was left with a lot of anger, a lot of anger. This is the second part of our exploration of the 2003 murder of Maria Yan, a beloved mother, grandma, friend and member of her community. Maria was killed violently in her home in Healesville, Victoria, and her case is still unsolved after a 2008 murder trial resulted in an acquittal. In our previous episode, we heard from Maria's son, Jeff, and this week we are joined by Jeff's daughter, Esther Yan, and close family friend and lawyer, Frank Chen. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. 
Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. You know when someone says they'll do anything they can to right a wrong? Frank Chen really meant it. And you'll hear the extraordinary lengths he's gone to so he can fulfil the promise he made to Maria at her funeral that he would do all he could to bring her killer to justice. And Esther was just in primary school when her beloved Nonna was murdered. Now, as an adult, Esther's been advocating tirelessly for justice for Maria. If you haven't already, listen to the conversation with Jeff before you press play on this episode. And you can find out more about Maria's case at the Victoria Police's Cold Case Hub online. We start with Esther telling us why she decided to study criminology. I liked studying violent crime, which is heavy, Mm. but it's really interesting to see a perspective of not only the victim, but why offenders commit crimes. Isn't it? Mm. And I think in order to prevent crime, you have to understand why people are doing crimes. Yes. And it's not all black and white. There's so many different aspects uh, and reasons why people are committing crimes down to petty crimes to, you know, hardcore violent crimes. So that that's very interesting to look into and learning the patterns, what to look for, how to prevent things from happening before it's too late. Um, and I also loved uh, learning about victims, yeah. which is relatable. Right. I would love to work with victims of crime. And obviously you would be very valuable in that space. Well, hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever met anyone else who has the lived experience that you have or anything similar to that? I've met one person whose grandparent was murdered, only one person my age. But growing up on the peninsula, not really. I mean, the worst of it was divorce. And the difference with me is I very openly talk about it. I don't keep it a secret. And I think it's not only it's it's an important process of therapy or expression, you know, dealing with a trauma to talk about it. For me, I do talk about this. It also lets other people know that have gone through experiences, that it's not so taboo to talk about, you know, to you don't have to keep it a secret. And I think it helps victims if you talk about things more. When I was in primary school and the case first happened, kids were making fun of me for it. Mm. You know, it was on the news, it was in the newspapers. I went to a tiny primary school that had less than 100 kids. So all the parents knew about it. And it was kind of this like, you know, tiptoe around the Yan daughters. Don't talk about anything around the Yan daughters. But for me, it helps to talk about things. So I think, you know, when we bump into other victims, not even victims, survivors, it's important to talk. Yeah, we were very open about it from day one, from when dad came and told, I still remember it like it was yesterday. He burst through the door crying, screaming, and my sister and I were little kids and um, it was a beautiful night. And from that moment, we were kind of shoved into this is your reality now, you know? And because I was so young and because I dealt with my sister and I and my cousins as kids, it became our reality. It it wasn't that crazy for us. After a while, 
very traumatic, but it's given us a real armour, you know. So when later things has happened in life, mm. we go, uh, well, me personally, I go, well, I've lived through that. This little issue isn't going to be a big deal because yeah, we've done a this. benchmark mm. at nine years old. Yeah. My sister and I would play in Hillsville after Nonna's murder and I, I'll always remember this. Some of the best childhood memories I have are playing in Nonna's house after she had died. Mm. And there's there were patches of carpet that had been removed for forensics and they weren't replaced for a long time. And Bella and I would get sleeping bags and sleep on them. Like, at no, you know, when we'd stay over and we'd watch bats and we'd, there'd be moths and we'd play with marbles and watch the fire, but we were sleeping in the spot she was killed. Mm. And nowadays I go, Jesus. But back then it was great. Like we had this beautiful house. We never were scared of ghosts. There was this whole like, you know, is it haunted? No. It's just reality. It's just like. And it was Nonna's house. I think that's the thing. It was such a safe place. Yeah. I can understand how you would never think of it as an unsafe place or a place of ghosts or anything. No. I mean, Dad made it through the shit. He was great, you know. Mm. He well, he shielded us. He so did my mum. He always had to be great. He always had to be the guy who had to go over to Pauline and James's and yeah. deal with everything. Fix things. Yeah. yeah. He was that guy. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I remember Nonna's funeral was the first funeral I had been to and my sister and I were excited because we got to dress up. And it was like, yay, you know. We get to go to this beautiful church. We get to dress up. It hadn't hit us yet. But then from the funeral was when we realised that as kids this isn't something that everyone goes through and those that do go through it carry baggage for the rest of their lives. Like I'm 27 now and there are things I can't do on a daily basis because I have internal trauma but it's taken me 19 years to realise that, you know, um, I, I get very, very, very anxious going outside. I can't answer the phone. Relationships are hard. I have a lot of trouble trusting people. Um, I've got all this baggage. That's what I tell my girlfriend, Sahan. I'm like, I come with baggage. I have a lot of anger, massive amounts of anger. And I want to work in this field and I do not trust the criminal justice system as far as I could throw them. Mm. And it sucks because I'm studying them. But they've, on a personal note, they've destroyed any trust and any hope my family had. But thank God where it's being picked up again. I just can't imagine, like, having the knowledge that someone has been, you know, gone to trial, mm. acquitted, you know, there's that strong feeling that there is a very, you know, likely person who committed this crime and they're just walking around. Like, mm. I don't know how I would process that. Is that where a lot of your anger comes from, do you oh, think? Oh, completely. The, I remember when I went to high school, I went to high school around Frankston and I would finish my day and I'd go down to Frankston. I wagged a lot. I struggled in high school. I would cut classes. I'd catch a train. I was very, 
I was not doing well the later years because I was struggling with so much like as you know as you grow up you go oh my god this is the injustice crazy yeah so when I got old like end of high school I was a real brat so I'd wag and go down the Frankston that's all you could do on the peninsula (laughs) as a teenager and James would walk straight past me wow you'd see him he'd just be walking around Frankston you know Mm. and that was a weird thing that's outrageous because sure if he is innocent Mm. it's still such a like oh Mm. this guy has really damaged my family and if he's guilty it's terrifying Mm, yeah (laughs) he's a murderer walking around the streets I think and I'm neither a criminologist nor a detective or anything else but I think this offender has massive potential to offend again that's where I think it's really important as well Mm. Um, you know, not only for your family but for the community. I mean, as a criminologist in the making, do you think so? I, I would not be surprised if he if he committed something way before Nonna. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. Yep. The planning. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and I know a lot of first crimes committed, especially first murders, it's messy and they leave. Yes. They leave mistakes and this was very set up. In my opinion, yeah, it was quite calculated. You know, um, the way Nonna was hit was very clean. Again, you look at how her body was left, and it's a very personal, emotional attack to the head, mm. multiple blows, too many. There was no forced entry, mm. so she let someone in that she knew. And I don't know if, if you've seen photos of the house; it's very steep driveway. Nonna would probably know if someone had arrived. Um, she let them in and was comfortable enough to, I, I, I know that if I've ever let a stranger, which I haven't, but if I let a stranger into my house, I'd turn the TV off and I'd present myself and I'd, you know, mm. her TV was still on. She was chill. To me, that's something you do if you know the person who's in the house well enough to just, you know, just turn the volume down a little bit and relax. So it's very, it's it's interesting. And again, the cell phone towers, the Telstra towers picking up the, the cell phone signals mm. from his phone. I think you know exactly what I'm getting at. But yeah, mm. yeah. the anger was... Um, yeah, not not only towards the injustice, but it was also towards the case just being forgotten and us expected to just go back to work and school and be like, eh. Well, that's the thing. It's one thing for the legal system to say he's acquitted, uh, James is not convicted of murdering your grandmother. But then it's another thing for them to say, but we don't have anyone else we yeah, suspected the crime. Yeah, it's like, all right, bye. Yeah, see you later. There yeah. is no one else no. we even suspect. It was nothing. Yeah. And we were kind of left to deal with our own yeah. grief yeah. in our own way, you know. And being in school, I had kids come up, like I said before, and, oh, you've had, you know, cool. It's cool. And I... Still speechless. I had I went to a very Christian high school, which was just not a good choice with divorced parents, murder, queer kids. Right. Gra- you know, trying to figure out their sexuality. And then 
so we were, you know, do not talk about Aww. anything around the Yan kids. If you see Esther struggling, let her be. So they teachers would see me wagging. And they just would instructed not to say anything. Oh, that's very Jesus-like of them. Oh, not yeah, right? yeah. You know, um, they'd take me to to the school chaplain, and I was told to pray. When I was, you know, trying to deal with my family or in the newspaper this morning, or my oh. dad was on the news, I just prayed away, and so I was left with a lot of anger, a lot of anger. I was at school. When the trial was happening, uh-huh. and I heard it from friends and teachers that he was acquitted. Oh no! And even back then, I didn't know what that meant. No, I was in year eight. I didn't get it. No, didn't understand it. And my sister didn't. She was a lot younger than me, obviously. And my cousins were in Queensland, and um, we'd go back home and saw that our parents were upset, and then we'd just get on our bikes and go for a bike ride, or yeah. I'd go ride my horses, and it was just like. Well, it's look, just bad. Yeah, it's just bad. Yeah. Bad stuff is happening. Yeah. And it's not until you become older that you go, holy shit, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. I've been to a lot of psychologists. At first they thought it was borderline personality. So I, And then it was uh, depression, anxiety. And then only 2019 I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. Mm. which made more sense. Yeah. So even that, it's like you go through years with your mental health going, oh, what's wrong with me? It's yeah. me. It's These are the reasons this is happening is because there's, you know, the tubes in my brain aren't channeling enough <laughs> endorphins or, you know, yeah. they're blocking natural happy chemicals. No, girl, you've got a reason. Yeah. And it's okay to understand where that reason, like what triggered it. Yeah. Another thing, you have to know what triggers are going to upset you. You have to, there are some triggers I can't, uh, like when the um, the Australian newspaper released a story, I couldn't watch anything to do with violence for a few weeks. Mm. And I love <laughs> researching violent crimes mm. um, because it's so interesting and it's, you know, my future career, but there's some, you have to protect yourself. When the article came out, it was, it was such an achievement. But I remember waking up really early because I wanted to go get a copy mm-hmm. from the news agency. And there was this old guy sitting on a park bench reading the magazine with my face and my dad's face on it. And I, I, I went, oh my God, it was the first time I'd seen it. And I went up to him and I'm like, that's me. Mm. Where did you get that? And he took one look at me, he took one look at the photo and he said, you should have smiled more. Oh, God. Oh, smile, love. Thanks, mate. And mm. I was gutted. So I went to the news agency and I bought 10 copies and I came back and he was still still reading it and he said, your dad looks pretty unhappy. He should have smiled more. And that's when a little switch in my head and I lost it. Mm. So much anticipation for this article to come out over three years of talking to David Murray, getting the court transcripts. I've got this man in a fedora telling me to smile more and saying, your dad looks pretty sad. He should have, you know, told him to smile. Mm. My God, that's uh, that's the other issue. (laughs) Sometimes I just... Yeah. Trigger. The kids in this family, as well as dad 
are still doing really well. My sister's a social worker. She's 25. She's working in the Northern Territory, helping children and women um, escape domestically violent homes. Mm -hmm. She's crazy. She's incredible. I know I couldn't do that. But I don't think Bella could have done that either if she hadn't had this experience. I wouldn't be studying criminology if I hadn't have had this experience. Mm. You have to look at offenders like people because they are. Mm-hmm. They've, they've gone through traumas, mm. um, whether they've made it themselves or, you know, it's a trickle-down effect. It's a pattern. A lot of p- people who have committed crimes have been the victims and it, it's a generational thing. And lots of people can't get their heads around that yeah. for one single second. No. Yeah. That's the thing. You can't look at everyone like they're, like they're monsters. Mm. We spoke to someone um, for a recording last week who said that the word monster in relation to crimes is probably one of the most unhelpful terms yeah. that we can use because it means that we were thinking we could recognise a monster. But, you know, people who commit crimes are just like... You and, and I. You and I. And it relieves all of us of our responsibility too, doesn't Completely. it? Completely. You could be sitting on a bus next to someone who looks normal. They're mm. wearing a suit, they're a teacher, whatever, and you don't know what they've done. And again, with people who are listening who have been through experiences like this, it's totally okay to trial, go through trials and errors with counsellors and yeah. psychologists and medication. There's all these different paths you can take, but it's important to find which is right for you. You know, some days I wake up, I can't get out of bed and I'm I'm a mess and I can't move and I don't want to be here. But then other days, God, I'll get up on stage and I'll put a clown costume on and I'll take my clothes off to in a gay club. Like (laughs) there are ups and downs, which comes with everything, but dealing with family, you know, family murder. Mm -hmm. It's heavy when it's family members. Yeah. Because mm. that's your first initial trust circle, you know. Especially when you're still nine. Yeah. yeah. There were, there's photos of me sitting on James's lap. This case has, I love my family. We're super strong. But at the same time, it's done a lot of damage, mm. a lot of damage. And on a good day, we look normal and we're celebrating and we're happy. But on a bad day it has left its mark, you know. Yeah, we're 18 years out Yeah, and it's still creating havoc in your family and everyone's emotional lives. Mm-hmm. You've grown up with this hanging over your head. And that's why if anyone knows anything, please contact. Crime Stoppers? Yep. You don't have to uh, report it with your details. You can do it, definitely do it anonymously, but... Anything, tiny, tiny, tiny little speck of detail, whether it's overhearing someone, um, gossip, anything, something seems sus, just say something, you know. Now that um, Vic Police have the the cold case hub, it's great. Yeah, go and have a look at that. It is awesome. It's awesome. That's a huge step, Mm. massive step. They're mm. making it public, you know. And for someone I know for family members that have been left in the dark, it, it might seem kind of like, oh, what's on next, you know, just another crime. And it's Australian crime, I think, smaller cases just get looked over a lot. You, you, you know, people 
you say true crime and people are like, oh, you know, um, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey oh. Dahmer, Ted Bundy. Ivan Milat. Yeah, oh, Ivan oh, Milat. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. 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 Yep. It's like, no, there's, it's in your neighbourhood. Yeah, absolutely. It is in your neighbourhood. You would know someone who's been through stuff. They're just not willing to talk about it or you don't know enough. Yeah, mm. and there's real people behind it and yep. real families desperate for information and desperate to get on with their lives and this stuff's really important. You can't, you know, really heal from it and really get on with your life. After the break, we meet Frank Chen, close family friend of the Yan family who actually went to university to study law so he could advocate to change Victoria's double jeopardy laws. Hi, Michelle and Emily. Um, I probably should have said my name or number or something like that. (laughs) So my name's Jennifer. Thanks so much for taking the time to leave us a voice message. We really appreciate it. And thanks for realising that we love it when you mention your name too. Hey guys, um, my name is Alex. Oh, well done, Alex. We receive your email address when you leave a message so we can always get back to you. Hi, Emily and Michelle. It's Robin here. Hi, Robin. But of course, we love to be able to acknowledge you easily on the show with your name. And hey, if you're shy, you can always just make up a name. Thank you. Worried mum in Adelaide. We love hearing your voice messages and we reply to them on a special show available exclusively to our Australian True Crime Plus members. Hey, Australian True Crime, it's Carla from Sydney. Oh, Carla, why do I think an early morning Uber from your home to the airport is in my future? Hi, this is Rachel. You'll find links to leave a voicemail and to join up to Australian True Crime Plus in the show notes to this episode. Hello, my name's Sally. Or you can swing by and visit us at Apple Podcasts. Just please don't forget to say your name. Hi, I'm Megan. Great job, Megan. Say your name, guys. And thank you so much for supporting Australian True Crime. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now we find out about the extraordinary steps Frank Chen's taken to assist the Yan family to resolve Maria's murder. Mid-1990s, my wife was working in a company called Surfcorp and she befriended Pauline Yan. And before very long, she became friends with Pauline Yan, who's the daughter of Maria. And we became friends with Pauline and with her husband, James, as well as other members of the family. And before very long, Pauline introduced Maria to us. And Maria being the person she was, she was very warm and inviting. And we became sort of like an extended 
part of her very large extended family. In fact, we'd even celebrated Christmases together in Hillsville, where she moved to after 1997. And that's how I came to know Maria. Can you speak to Pauline and James's relationship as you knew it then? I think it's been recorded both you know, in, in court transcripts, um, also in articles that uh, David Murray had put together in The Weekend Australian. I think they're fairly accurate. It was up and down, sometimes tumultuous. Something would inflame an argument and then go through a series of concerns. Maria would get involved because she'd be worried about Pauline. And there would be, you know, a period of settling down and it would then resume to some sort of normalcy. And that would pass and then something else would come. A lot of relationships may have elements of that, but there was always a, a, an edge to it. Not that I ever thought it would get to the point where it culminated in Maria's death. Did you ever act as a kind of support or almost quasi-counsellor for the couple at any time, just trying to help them work through some of this stuff? With Pauline, I think particularly with my wife, yes, and ourselves, and because of our relationship with Maria, who we, we actually quite um, became quite close with her because she was, in a way, she had this very mum way about her, and uh, my wife had lost her mum through cancer, and so she did find uh, a natural relationship with Maria, who was very warm and very giving. So yes, as a consequence of that, because of Maria's worry for, for Pauline, and also because of Lynn's own relationship with Pauline, yes. And as you're talking, I'm reminded of things Jeff told us about Maria, the ex- extended family, the adopting people around her um, and creating this bigger family. And Jeff saying that it was like the United Nations around their table. It certainly can be mm. colourful. And Maria did, she would take on people like the people I wouldn't know necessarily, mm. strangers, that you know were perhaps in a bit of a hard position and she would reach out to them and help them. That was Maria because Maria ran not only um, her relationships and she would well, I mean, run, she would look after her, her sisters and make sure they were okay and her friends, but she ran the op shop, mm. which was in Hillsville. And, you know, if you looked outside the op shop, there was all all these things that were basically donated or that she collected. Because sometimes if you go visit Maria, she would say, come on, we're going for a collection. <laughs> <laughs> and what Like she, hard rubbish and stuff? Um, you know, well, people's personals that they didn't want because yeah. she had a number of, uh, I suppose what stands out most in my memory are, she would say to me, there were a number of single mums and they didn't have very much. So if she could find dresses or things that she could just darn up or wash or, or just represent so they were decent, mm. then they, they she could offer them and they would be, you know, something could be repurposed again. And so she would have these outside her shop and she would go and she'd wash them and she'd go and fix them and she'd go and then put them out on show and make them so that they were of a standard that would be not only saleable but usable. That that was Maria. She uh, she was that was in her blood. Yeah. Wow, a special lady. So, um, when did you find out that something terrible had happened at her home? Well, I think it you know uh, not immediately, but I guess very shortly after when the family had been advised, we were then advised, and uh, from that time it was just a, a bit of a blur because it's quite fantastical when you hear that sort of thing. And then, I guess before very long, the detectives, Ron Idle and uh, Tim Day, 
started to, I guess, fan out and talk to people who knew Maria. And so it wasn't very long before, you know, there was some sort of um, better understanding what had occurred. Perhaps we're still wondering why and everything else, but uh, it wasn't that long. I, I know that something happened at her funeral. You you made a promise at her funeral. Maria um, suffered a, quite a severe trauma through through the course of the murder. Her head was struck, I think, 21 times. So a good portion of the rear of her skull was not really present behind the ear. And so we went to the, uh, on the day of um, preparing for the funeral, we went to um, a viewing, etc. And uh, when I saw Maria there, um, I began to have thoughts that, you know, we, we should bring, her to, bring the, the perpetrator to justice. Um, later, when the family were very kind and honoured me to be one of the pallbearers, I made a commitment to her that I would do what I could to continue to uh, assist as best possible, bring her perpetrator to justice for the crimes that I had witnessed the result of and uh, how this life and the people it touched uh, had been brought to a very violent end. It's extraordinary. And, and what's more extraordinary is that you turned that promise into reality over the course of the rest of your life. I mean, many of us are moved in a moment like that. But, I mean, you meant it. Uh, well, I, I'd had hoped initially that the police would be able to bring a conviction. But when that didn't happen, and there were a number of events that brought that sort of reinforced that, I felt I had to honour that commitment as best possible, and I'm trying to still. So, what was your first step? Well, I think after the, you know, after the uh, the trial, I think we were all in shock, mm. and. Uh, Rhonda and Jeff were asked by Bromlin Hammond from the Office of Public Prosecutions, she was sort of like a, a coordinator, convener, to just come in for a debrief. And it would be a debrief with Mark Dean, who was that time um, Crown Prosecutor, and his instructing solicitor, John. Both Rhonda and Jeff said, well, look, Frank, can you come along? Uh, it'd just be good. You know, we've got a couple of concerns. We had a a family, they had a family get together and I, I joined the family and putting a list of questions about how this all happened, what could what could be done, etc. We had the meeting. It was at 545 Lonsdale Street. I can I think remember. It was the Office of Public Prosecutions and uh, it was in a meeting room. And uh, I'll just summarise by saying it didn't go well. I, I think I can speak, I feel confidently for the family that there was lack of empathy and it was very matter of fact, and essentially any attempt to retry James would be impossible because of the rule against double jeopardy, uh, even if new evidence were to come to light. Whether there were any procedural problems with the trial itself that might lead to reinvestigation that wasn't open, and that was it. So shortly after the meeting finished, Brom and Hammond came to me, and she could see that we were all quite disappointed and really quite shocked. And she asked me, are you all right? And I said, no. And we had a bit of a conversation and it turned out to be something along the lines that it didn't go well. I don't think the family feels 
that it really got a resolution. And we're left now with nowhere to really move because the rule against double jeopardy precludes us from trying to do anything further. And I don't feel the reasons that we were given were sufficient. It's left more questions than answers. But I'm ignorant and I don't understand. So she asked, what did I, what was I going to do? And I said, I'm, I'm going to law school. And again, that's the kind of thing a lot of us say in a moment like that. But you did it. Well, uh, in the third, in the trimester, third trimester of 2008, I was admitted into Monash. And um, I was working, I then decided to adjust my work life to try and make it part-time. And uh, I finished in 2013. Wow, that's following through. That is truly you following through. unbelievable. Well, it still really didn't at the time. And I, and I guess we're still in a situation of trying to bring this matter to a proper conclusion hasn't finished. Mm. We, we not completed the journey no. in my mind. No. But what, we, what happened then was, I, I guess, being now w- with lawyers and trying to understand the law, it gave me an opportunity to begin to understand how the system works. And it's a system. Mm. For those people who don't understand, it's a system. I mean, currently I, I do community legal work on, on night shift. And I try to explain to people it's a system because when you come into it, sometimes you're looking at justice. Yes. Mm, and yeah. it's really a system. So the first thing then was to try and understand what the system was and to work with people that were experienced more so than I was. And um, that's when I mentioned that I reached out to uh, Noel and Beverly McNamara, mm. who were the founders of the Crime Victims Support Association. And they started that because uh, I think it was in 1998 there daughter Tracy, eldest daughter, was brutally murdered and they felt a calling to help and support victims of crime. So I went to them and they knew about Maria's case and they said it was appalling. Because we meet a lot of people who talk about that, about being re-traumatised by the court process. They've lost a loved one to violence and then they go through the court process and they find that just, they feel so helpless. They feel so lost within that system and that some of them then come out the other side and they want to help other families who find themselves in that awful situation. I think that's that, that's definitely Noel and, and yeah. Beverly's calling, and I know they're still doing that today, and they do it on their own without support sometimes, yeah, like out of their own pocket. They're passionate about how hard it is on families. Well, yes, because people go in and they're saying, why can't this person say this in yeah. court? Mm. Um, and why are the barristers going into court a corner having a conversation with the judge and the barristers are laughing at each other. Yes. How does this all work? Yeah. Well, aren't they supposed to be opposing? Aren't yeah. they on my side? So they don't understand and it, and it's confusing. And then when they've come through the system, the result is nothing what they anticipated mm. and they're broken. So they're broken twice. Yes. And I think Nolan Beverly did, um, they've done a lot, but I think by having the victim impact statement, which you know, they really brought to the fore in Victoria. That was an attempt to try and get their voices heard uh, when there was, you know, instances of sentencing. But yes, um, a lot of people walk into that system. They don't understand. And they're dealing with people who are very intelligent and very learned and everything else. But sometimes the empathy isn't there. Yeah, and they're so familiar with the system. They know the jargon and the processes mm-hmm. and the poor person who's never ever thought they were going to enter into a criminal justice system, mm-hmm. trying to, to, to get justice for somebody in their family or a friend is dealing with uh, 
this level of trauma. It's horrifying. Mm. Looking back now, do you feel as though you do understand what happened in, in this case? Yes, I do. Okay. I do. But I also understand the limitations of being able, well, at the time, to being able to do anything about it. Mm. And so with uh, Noel Beverly and the help of a, another one of their members, Philip Lingston, we started putting together a, a policy proposal about how we would look at introducing law reforms in Victoria to modify the wow. rule against double jeopardy. So it wasn't enough for you to say, okay, I get it. You said, okay, I get it, and now I want to change the law. It goes back to what is the commitment that was made yep. to see justice for Maria. That cannot be had if there are grounds, for example, even with fresh and compelling evidence to bring a retrial of James. Uh, previously, there was no way in which you could do that mm -hmm. because the rule against double jeopardy prevented us from, from doing anything. Mm. So that's the first thing that has to be looked at. We need to have legislative reform. So we put together a, a package, and I think if you go on the internet, you can still see elements of it. But with Noel's help, the first port of call was to go to the Attorney General, mm -hmm. Rob Hulse at the time, because mm -hmm. that's what you would do yep. and say, sir... This is what's happened. Um, would you be? Would you entertain some reform? He was implacably opposed to it. Now you have to understand. Back in two thousand and seven, there was a meeting called of COAG, Council of Government, the Council of Australian Governments, and they met in April two thousand and seven. And what they were looking at it was they were looking at reforms to double jeopardy, mm. and they were trying to follow what the UK had passed in two thousand and three. So as far back as 1999, the Brits had started to look at the rule against double jeopardy and saw there were problems with it. In 2001, they actually launched a report saying we should make changes. And in 2003, they changed the law. In, in Australia, the first state to do that was New South Wales in 2006. They made changes. In 2007, Queensland made changes. In 2008, South Australia and Tasmania made changes. We went to Rob Hulse, and at the time we did, it was 2008, 2009. We said, can we make changes? And he said, no, it's not really interested. God. I mean, because the idea is that, I guess, you know, you shouldn't be able to try the, a person for the same crime over and over and over again. But at the moment, or at this time, as it stood, you, you, you can't try the same person for the same crime even twice, even no matter what evidence pops up afterwards. Correct. Once so, they've been acquitted, mm. that's it. So the, what, what really it turns out in a nutshell, if you look at what's happened in the UK, New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, Tasmania, it comes from the, and even in New Zealand, it comes from the same principle. If there is fresh and compelling evidence, mm. that is, for instance, there's new technology, new evidence that can bring to bear something that was previously hidden, obscured, okay. or unknown. And the second is um, if there are things that would have tainted the acquittal by way of procedural, some sort of procedural problem. Oh, okay. You know, you can have uh, what they call administrative type offences like perjury, uh, bribery, um, you know, things like witness tampering or even jury tampering where you actually have the system being worked on to produce an incorrect result. And it's not something that, Otherwise, we'd be hearing it all the time. It's, mm -hmm. As you, you know, it's not something that gets brought up 
um, frequently. And the reason for that is that most law enforcement agencies and prosecution officers are trying to deal with the current matters on on their So true. Yeah, the waiting list is so long to get to court. Correct. So, you know, they've already had maybe an attempt to to try somebody for a crime Mm. and it didn't come out the right way. But that doesn't mean it stops. It means tomorrow morning when they wake up, there's other crimes that they've got to try and resolve and other criminals that they have to bring to justice. So there's only limited resource. So it's not something which a lot of the critics would say that, you know, it would be an abusive process that would be constantly used to chase and pursue somebody Mm. because the resources aren't there for that because every day there's other things to do. So Mm. it's done typically in the exception and the rare cases where there's something, you know, the course of justice really hasn't gone down the right path. Mm. So Rob Hull says no way the first time you you go and ask him. He said, well, we, he, he, in fact, he's, he was on the record for saying that he yeah. was not interested despite the fact the other jurisdictions had decided to move. And I think there was probably a degree of resistance in Victoria in general. What that meant, though, was that we knew there was an election coming. It was a 2010 the Victorian right. state election. And we knew there was an opportunity perhaps for the Liberal Party in this instance to maybe become a power, maybe. And the shadow attorney general at the time, his name was Robert Clark, he's now retired from from political life, he'd previously actually come to our meetings and he'd made himself known as a, a sympathiser of, of a victim's crime. And uh, we'd put something together and uh, said that we would like to meet with him. He actually offered to meet me in the House of Parliament. Because the Liberals, the Victorian Liberals in particular, love a bit of victims of crime and they love a bit of Labor isn't taking crime seriously and... That's a, a thing that they love to to peddle at election it's, it's, time. It, yeah, it's a it's a platform. Yeah, you know, law and order. The law, law and order. order. That's yeah. what I was the looking for. The law and order platform. Great. Yep. And at the time, you know, there were problems with our legal system, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, Noel was busy constantly in the newspapers. If you go back to two thousand eight yeah. to two thousand nine, you know, you'll see his name in a lot of uh, articles in the Herald, Sun, or in the Age mm-hmm. because there were problems, and so. I met with Robert Clark um, in Parliament House. He actually greeted me in the um, the Queen's Hall, mm. and then he took me to the members' dining room and sat down. And he he basically said, um, "I understand you 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 you're concerned about something. It's to do with double jeopardy, etc. Just tell me, start from the beginning. Just tell me what's really on your mind." And he sat there quietly, and I and I actually went through Maria's trial. Um, I went through our meeting with the Office of Public Prosecutions and with the Crown Prosecutor. Uh, I went through a summary of developments that he was probably aware of in the UK, New South Wales, and all the other states. I suggested, you know, this was important for us, but not only for us, because there were a number of other cases that were in the wings where this would have a, a, a positive policy and social impact for those cases. And at the end, he just looked at me and and very assuringly said, "I'm going to pursue with this, mm-hmm. and uh, and we will we will take this up." True to his word, uh, in 2010, he actually did come out and he actually did say that it was one of the things that he wanted to do was to reform the the, the rule against double jeopardy. One year after, almost a, a year after he got into office, on the 11. Uh, 21st of December, sorry, 21st of December 2011, the rule against double jeopardy in this state was modified. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. 
you know, there was really where it stood after that meeting that did not go well for um, with the the OPP. There was no hope for this, and then you've gone and studied law and helped to change. You know, I wouldn't. I would have said that actually. You know, um, there were really more three people that were probably probably should take the credit more than I. And the first would be Bronwyn Hammond because she 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 actually had empathy. I could see that she could see that we were really not happy and and later on when it actually when there was a a change in the law i i, I uh, called her up and she was like she was uh and emailed her as well and she was very very supportive so i, bet I think you shocked the shit out of her <laughs> when you told her that you actually went to law school like come on what did she say well I, I don't think it's made. There will probably be other people have done similar. Oh, rubbish. You're so oh, modest. No one, uh, no one has done similar, mate. And, uh, no one. Uh, We've the, all said similar. No yeah, one's done it. Yeah. Well, the second person, the second group I would give, you know, credit to would be Noel and Beverly and Phil Lillingston because they yeah. supported me. And without them, I couldn't have had access yeah. to the third person who I'm most grateful to, and that's Robert Clark. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it just wouldn't have happened. I couldn't have just mm. gone to Robert Clark and say, Mr. Clark, can I see you about yeah. who are you? It yeah. really needed somebody with credibility such as Noel Beverly to say, look, this is really important, Robert. You need to meet Francis and get this talked mm. about. Well, Frank, some people know me. but So mm. um, I think I was just really more of a catalyst. Uh, there were other people, I think, that really helped bring it, to, brought it together. But as I said... The journey's not ended. No. no. All the things that she did elicited a response. Mm. You know, because she'd put out so much and because of what she suffered, it's elicited a response. Mm-hmm. And and it would it, that response is still working its way through. And even to the fact that, you know, Tim Day said that that's something that he wants to it's solvable. So it's uh it's a, it's there are good signs there. Thank you to our guests, Esther Yan and Frank Chen. If you have any information regarding the death of Maria Yan or any other crime, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000 or go to the website. You can report information anonymously. If you have been affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can phone Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio. HubAustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.